Welcome to episode 362 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. What kind of support are you looking for as you grow your business? My Content and Connection Club includes a weekly mastermind, weekly co-working sessions, monthly business book club, member-hosted office hours, five-minute member spotlights, access to courses, and much more. Our community attracts abundant-minded, striving and thriving six-figure entrepreneurs. We're coaches, consultants, speakers, authors, and podcast hosts, and we're all about supporting each other and having a bigger impact in the world. Receive all club membership benefits for just $100 a month. You can get started with a free 30-day trial to see if we're a good fit, and of course, you can cancel at any time. If you're ready to kick off 2024 surrounded by these awesome entrepreneurs, join us at contentandconnectionclub.com. The link again is contentandconnectionclub.com. Before we hear from our sponsor, I want to mention that this episode touches on a sensitive subject, and I don't want you to be caught off guard. We'll be discussing grief and losing loved ones. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be, to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. In a world filled with unexpected challenges, today's guest has transformed her life's journey into a beacon of support and guidance for widowed parents. For two decades, she led transformation projects for IBM, across five continents, mastering the art of managing cross-functional teams and implementing innovative business solutions. However, at 43 years old, her life took an unforeseen twist when she became a widowed parent to two young children. She discovered that resources for widowed parents were scarce, so she decided to fill the gap. She created the Widowed Parent Podcast, an insightful show that explores the real-life stories of widowed families, providing a platform to share their perspectives reflections, and invaluable advice. She's the author of two books, Future Widow, Losing My Husband, Saving My Family, and Finding My Voice, and Widowed Parents Unite, 52 Tips to Get Through the First Year from One Widowed Parent to Another. She founded the Widowed Parent Institute, further solidifying her commitment to helping others navigate the challenges of solo parenting after loss. Her work has been described as real and relevant, intermixed with a sense of hope for the future. Please join me in welcoming Jenny Lisk. 
Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much, Robbie. It is exciting to be here with you, and especially the day after my second book was published. This is kind of all part of the celebration of that. So I'm thrilled to be here with you. Thank you. It's really awesome. I really did know you when, but now we're going to go into the Wayback Machine. To kick things off, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, this is such a hard question. I don't know if everybody has trouble with this question, but I thought you might ask me because I've listened to your shows and I know that a lot of people have had some interesting answers on this. I think I'm going to answer it in sort of the negative case. Like it was a time that I stepped back when I actually realized that I tended to step in and lead. And it was, you know, it was so strange because I think that, you know, when, when you, when you do something naturally, you don't even realize you're doing it. And I think about it as an analogy, like my, my daughter, she's in high school, she's an artist. And if you were talking to her and you said, when did you realize you had artistic talent? I think she'd probably say, huh? I don't know. I've been drawing my whole life. Like, isn't that normal? Right. And I, I think it's the same thing. So this was a case when I was in college. And so this is not some lofty, like, example. Uh, and <laughs> it was like a weekend and there was a party on campus, a big party. And for some reason, like all the people in this sorority wanted to go to this party off campus and then come back and go to the party on campus, right? So it was a task. How do we get 20 or 30 girls, right? And who has cars and who wants to be a designated driver and all these things, right? So this friend and I stepped in and, and we're like, uh, you know, trying to sort all this out. And then my friend looked at me and she said, you know what? We don't have to do this. Like we are always doing this. What, let's let somebody else figure this one out. And I was like, huh, really? And then, I, you, know, I, you know, she's right, you know, like, and I had, I had just like stepped in and started figuring out we should do this and this and let's ask this person and whatever, right? Without even realizing that that was just stepping into the gap to solve this particular problem, which again is a silly, like, let's get 20 or 30 girls from one party to another, right? And I, I think about that sometimes as a, you know, it's not significant career-wise, but I think it's significant for introspection, right? To be that first realizing, like, wait, is this what I naturally do? Uh -huh. I never noticed that. I never noticed that I was an artist. Not me, boy, you know, my daughter, right? I never noticed that I tended to try to solve problems. And which leads me, I think, to the other part of your question, how do I define leadership? And that, ooh, that's, that's a hard one, because to come up with something that is broad enough to be generally applicable and yet specific enough to be meaningful, not just platitudes or something, right? Is a tricky one. And I was thinking, I was really thinking about this and I thought, you know, I think that it is the ability or tendency to see a gap between how the world, now I'm going to put the world in air quotes here because I'll come back to this, but how the world is a gap between that and how it could be or should be. And so I think that could be, you know, okay, so what's the world in this case? Well, it could be a big thing. Like, I don't know, pick one of the many problems we have in society right now. And, you know, trying to see a gap between how things are presently and how they could be or should be and articulating the vision for where we could be and then marshalling the, the people, the resources, the discourse, the whatever it is, to start moving us towards closing that gap, right? It could be something as big as solving a big societal problem. It could be something as small as 
you know, how are we going to get 20 or 30 girls to a party? Right. Great callback. And, and it could be something in between, which, you know, I think we'll get into here. But in, you know, in my case, seeing this gap that I became a widowed parent and I was like, at, at where, like, uh, right now I'm tongue tied. I was tongue tied then. How, where, how, where is the information? Where's the resources? Where's the support? How, you know, we have a gap here. Mm-hmm. And then deciding that I should like appoint myself to try to fill that gap. In, in a lot of ways, you've always been who you are. And mm. the circumstances of your life changed over time. Um, but your instincts were to recognize the problem, see the possibility, marshal the resources, the people, the discourse, mm. measure the result. Yeah. Do it and, all over again. And articulating the vision and adjusting as you learn mm-hmm. more or as things change or whatever, right? There's a whole complex, but I think that could be applied across all sorts of scenarios. Um, and, and like I said, you know, whether it's the, the, you know, the tendency or the ability or something to, to put yourself in that position of like, I'm going to close this gap, whatever this gap is, that's important to you and your world and your life, you know, based on where you find yourself. I want to test this hypothesis that you are who you've always been. Okay. Take me back a little bit. Uh, you know, always curious what my guests were like when they were kids, you know, like on the playground or uh, did they run for student body office or get involved after school clubs or did teachers see potential in them? Did they see potential in themselves? Like what kind of kid were you? Were you the one organizing your friends in the playground to make sure there was enough people on each team? Like were you sitting back in the book? Like how did you, you show know? Up? Okay. So what kind of kid was I? I was probably quiet. I played sports every season. I think that some of my leadership came out and like I was the captain of the varsity basketball team, like that kind of thing. And I don't, you know, no coach never told me why I was the captain. I don't know. He just made me the captain. <laughs> like, um, uh, you know, I was, you know, quote unquote, good student type of person, right? You're asking about teachers. I, actually, it's funny. I remember my high school, my favorite high school social studies teacher who I had for multiple classes. So I had a chance to get to know him over the years. Um, because I didn't raise my hand in class a lot back then. And it wasn't until we had an assignment where I had to write a paper. And this is sort of a backhanded compliment. He gave me like an A or an A plus, I don't know, something on the paper with like some, you know, great comments. And he said something like, you know, you haven't really said anything in class. I didn't even realize that you like... (laughs) had anything to offer here basically like until you wrote this paper he was like wow where'd this come from so that that was an interesting uh i i think that the i think i've always had the tendency but the maybe the confidence or ability to act on it mm-hmm. was longer in coming it is interesting that for sports teams you were being picked as a leader because you must have been good with your peers and probably felt more comfortable kind of in that space than maybe like raising your hand in class, which is a, mm. which is a different, I don't know, it's like a different skill set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the confidence needs to come from someone like a different maybe experience of it being okay, being okay, being, you know, like trying right. it. Did you have a sense at 12 or so years old of what you were going to be when you oh, grew I was, up? I, yeah, I was going to be Perry Mason. You're going to be Perry Mason. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so for people who maybe aren't familiar, Perry Mason yeah. was a lawyer. And originally it was a bunch of books that came out, I don't know, probably in the 1950s or something. 
my my parents had some of the original paperbacks. In fact, I think I've still got them somewhere. And they're like these old 1950s paperbacks with like the paper all, you know, yellowed and stuff. And um, but Perry Mason was a lawyer and he was a criminal defense lawyer and he solved every case with all these, you know, courtroom, you know, he, he had very, um, he was smart and he got the guys to, you know, admit guilt on the stand. And it was very exciting. And I think it was the this, this sense of, I don't know, justice or something and the sense of, of I don't know what I loved about it, but I was going to be Perry Mason. Wow. And did you know, I mean, besides this fic- fictional character, was there anyone in your life who like had was that a lawyer kind of or, or like fought for justice or? No, I didn't. Nobody really close to me and family or anybody was a lawyer of any sort, much less a you know defense lawyer or a criminal lawyer or something like that or a trial lawyer. How long did this, um, my, this dream last? Did, did it last until you actually got to college? I was going to go to law school. Um, I was intending to. I was a ma- I was poli sci and econ major, and I took constitutional law, like an undergrad constitutional law class, my sophomore year. And it was a class that normally seniors and sometimes juniors took. Um, and the person who taught it, the professor, was a brilliant lawyer and known for being a very tough. Like she taught the class as if it was a law school class, like writing case briefs and calling on people. And she ended up becoming a I think on the Oregon Supreme Court, a justice. Um, so yeah, I haven't talked to her in forever, but um, I, you know, yeah, I I thought I was going to do that, and I never did. But I was going to say you were asking about people in my life. My mother was on the city council in the town that I grew up in, actually the town that I live in now, um, for two terms when I was a kid, and so when I was probably eight or 10, maybe she ran for city council the first time. And I remember, you know, holding up signs on election day and folding the brochures and, you know, all the things going around knocking on doors and, you know, my mom's running for city council. Can I give you a brochure? You know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that was definitely a a powerful example there. Yeah. Seeing that up front and being a part of that experience and seeing Mm -hmm. her put put forward and like fear of rejection, but yet she's going to do it because she believes in what she can bring as a leader. And she ended up being the council president, I think, in her second term, um, which is a position picked by the the seven council members, pick one of themselves to be the council president. Yeah, yeah. That's a really cool example to see that up front. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's interesting because I, um, I was a poli-sci major mm-hmm. and my third year of undergrad, I discovered sociology. Uh, I finished sociology as a second major in like three semesters. <laughs> like, wow. I just was like, oh my gosh. And like, you know, just yeah. did it all. Fortunately, I was pretty far ahead with the poli sci. So I ended up finishing with both and, uh, and some minors in there. But I took constitutional law and uh, that, that and like some session I went to about like, should you go to law school? Uh, convinced me not to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, sometimes I still think about it, right? Like, yeah. when, how fun would that be to go to law school? Now, you know, I'm 51. So by the time I could actually do it, it'd be a couple more years, probably. And then by the time I'd finish, I'd be in my mid 50s, at least. Uh, but you I've, know, heard, I've heard of stories <laughs> that would make that not that extreme. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, and to be a student now, too. Like, you know, when you're a student, when you're younger, you're like, I got to get through this. I got to get my degree. I got to whatever. And now I'd be like, wow what you know tell me more like you know <laughs> want to learn everything i took some evening classes as an undergrad and 
the worst bell curve ever. <laughs> All these re adult returning students, like, <laughs> you know, like paying their own way through. Yeah, who are nine, super motivated. Right. Yeah, they're super motivated. And I just didn't like waking up early. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, when you left college with this poli-sci econ degree, what was the plan? Where, where did you go next with that degree? Uh, well, I came back to Seattle and I started a job at the Chamber of Commerce doing like just education policy stuff. Um, I didn't stay there very long. I decided that I actually, speaking of entrepreneurship, um, I was going to, well, first I think I was going to write a, a book, a sort of a book about uh, being an intern at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Because I had done some internships there and part of my college was there. And, you know, so I, but this was pre-internet. This was a long time ago, you know, so talk about like a networking challenge, right? How do you find enough people to interview or write pieces for collect resources. There was no internet to Google and find stuff. And there was no Facebook groups to tap into find people, none of that stuff. And uh, it kind of fizzled out, but I ended up deciding that I, well, I ended up getting more interested in business school and I applied to the University of Washington for the MBA program and ended up doing that. And uh, I remember I wrote a, my application that I was going to in my senior thesis for economics, I had written about starting a like an airline ticket exchange, like to have dynamic market pricing for airline tickets because airline tickets are so crazy, right? Like it's completely ir irrational what some of the prices are and how they change and stuff. And I was like, oh, we can make this better. And so I wrote my application for the business school saying like, you know, I want to come get an MBA so I can go and then start this thing. Of course, I didn't end up doing that at all. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, they let me in. I guess it was a compelling. Uh, yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit like Priceline and and hotels. Well, exactly. It is a little like that. And I, yeah. like when it, when Priceline popped up some years later, I was like, hmm, what is this? Is interesting. Like this sounds a little bit like what I was. Yeah. You know, talking about. But uh, yeah, so that was, and then I ended up at IBM, and uh, and I was there for twenty years. Yeah, and and that's. I mean, that's a big, that's a big place to land. Like, how mm -hmm. did you get your foot in the door? Well, my sister was there. Um, and so she's younger than me, but she had gone to school in New York State. And IBM was recruiting, she was a math major. So IBM was recruiting people, you know, when she was graduating from college. Um, and she landed there. And then after business school, um, I actually started working for this little company that made. Uh, basketball courts out of recycled sneakers and tires, which is a whole weird. Anyway, after like, uh, I don't know, not very long, they couldn't pay me. And they started saying, how about if you take your, you know, how about if you work for stock instead of for cash? And I was like, yeah, but stock doesn't pay my rent. So I started looking around and my sister said, well, you know, they're always looking for good people. Why don't I pass your resume around? And the next thing I knew, they flew me back there and I had just been married like six months before that. And we were like, Hey, this sounds like an adventure. Let's go to New York. And, um, you know, started, started working there. And if your life had just sort of stayed on course, we wouldn't be here talking. That is true. Because you were there for 20 years, which means you're a lifer. Mm. You were not planning to leave. You weren't going to jump into entrepreneurship. I mean, you just had a, you had a plan. And when did your plan start to, to veer? Well, the interesting thing is I would have liked to have left at lots of points, but I couldn't see a way to leave. Like, you know, when you have a job, 
with a salary and benefits and a mortgage and all these things, right? It's not so easy necessarily to to leave. And, uh, and when we were there, actually, so my husband uh, went to NYU for grad school while we were there and got a master's in urban planning. And so when we moved back out here, I think your question was, how did my life change to the case where we're talking now? Um, he ended up getting brain cancer. And it was 2015, so that's like eight plus years ago. Um, and it was the strangest thing. He was totally fine. And then one day he started feeling a little bit dizzy and started saying some things that didn't quite make sense, but it also wasn't, he was mostly normal, right? So then I was second guessing myself. Like, did he just, like the thing he just said that sounded weird? Am I overreading the situation here? Like, you know, what's the deal? Anyway, he got more and more confused over a week or so. And I ended up, we took him into primary care thinking that he had, you know, he had just started this medicine for like, you know, whatever random thing that was just a, like a, like a rare side effect was, was cognitive confusion. So I was convinced, ah, oh, well, he's got one of the rare side effects. We'll just go in and change the medicine. He'll be fine. And the doctor said, let's do an MRI of your brain while you're here. And then, you know, normally they, they call you back in 48 hours and tell you, or they put it in my chart or something, but they actually, at the end of the MRI time, they said, go back upstairs. The doctor wants to see you. And so and this is primary care. So they didn't, you know, usually deal with this kind of stuff. And he said, well, there's something really wrong with your brain to my husband. Um, I don't want to scare you, but it might be glioblastoma, which is a super aggressive brain cancer with a single digit five year survival rate. Um, you need to see the neurosurgeon tomorrow. And the neurosurgeon would go in and says, we're doing surgery the following day. So this is like, wait a minute, everything was perfectly normal. And now you're having brain surgery, like they're cutting your head open. And that was like, that's how it all started. And then he had eight months worth of complications and cerebral spinal fluid leaking out of his brain and cognitive issues and ultimately hospice. And and then he died in, in January 2016. So we're coming up on, on eight years of that. Eight years ago right now, we're in the middle of all this. Um, you know, as a caregiver, yeah, they were nine and 11. I was his caregiver uh, and trying to parent. And, you know, fortunately, this is one good thing about large corporations. And my boss, who was very supportive, he just kind of said, take care of what you need to take care of, um, which I wouldn't have been able to, you know, do any of this if they hadn't been supportive. Um, so I'll always be grateful for that. Uh, and eventually I started working, you know, kind of very part time. Um, so, and then he died and I was, and then I was like, well, now, you know, I've got two kids and what am I supposed to do? Right. Because, and this is getting to some of the gaps. Right. But at that point I was, a, I was a parent of, you know, nine years and 11 years for these two kids, but I was, a, I was, you know, an expert, if you will, in like regular kid stuff. I don't know if I was even an expert, but I was competent enough. Right. <laughs> in regular kid stuff, but all this whole thing of like, okay, now you got grieving kids. Well, that's a whole different thing. And so I went to Amazon and I typed in like, where's the book that's going to tell me how to do this? Some people have said that it's some like, uh, you know, that book, what to expect when you're expecting and then what to expect the first year and then all that, like what to expect when the other parent dies is kind of the book I was looking for. And there wasn't a book. And um, must have been around this time 
Well, I don't remember the sequence of somewhere in there. Well, I joined Dory Clark's group and through that I met you. Um, somewhere in there I hit on the idea that I could start a podcast to try to tackle something in this space. And, I, you know, I was talking with my, my therapist for all this time, and which is interesting because what started out as being like, my husband died and I'm an instrumental griever, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about if you want. But anyway, um, I'm having all these flashbacks and like, I don't know how I'm supposed to get any work done. Can you help me? And she's like, well, you know, I'd certainly like to try. Why don't you come in and we'll talk. So what started out as like a grief thing became like a life thing, right? Like there's so much more than just the specific loss or the space, a greater context of like, well, okay, well, I didn't die. So, and I'm only at the time 40, three so so now what yeah right and that was coinciding with 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 this gap of like I, this widowed parenting thing was the heart like i could see that there were resources for widowed people as in for me myself right like with my grief like i had a therapist like i said like i found good books there's a thing called camp widow which is amazing there's all kinds of things that i could see that i could find support and find a way forward for myself where I felt lost was like, how do I be a parent to grieving children? And so that's where I was finding this gap and saying, what can I do about this? There's so much to unpack here. And I think you use the term instrumental, uh, what was the phrase? Instrumental griever, as opposed to an intuitive griever. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, around the time that I knew your story, um, someone I knew who was a dad in, in a, in a, like at home dad group that I was part of, um, he was gone within like, like a week, hmm. same disease. Oh, wow. It was sudden. Wow. It was like, he was, he was the at home parent. He wasn't, she came home and like things were kind of in the wrong place. The house was a mess. Like he was, he was a very organized, like put together, fully committed parent to a very, two young children, um, under five at the time. And suddenly, like just little things, he had a little bit of a headache and, and then it was gone. Like, so I don't know what's worse, the suddenness that she, I don't know, ever really got over or the eight months of sitting by someone's bedside. I don't, both sound horrible. What I've concluded and try to encourage people is to say like, we don't need to compete, right? For yeah. like, and everybody tends to think their own thing is worse. And the people who had the sudden losses wish they had more time to say goodbye. And the right. people yeah. who had the long time losses are like, yeah, but you didn't have to deal with diapers and you didn't have to deal with five emergency room visits in one week and right, like all the things. And so I think it's just, I mean, it's all terrible. It's terrible. And so it comes down to like, which part is going to be harder. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just uh, seeing how you responded, seeing how she responded, sort of gives me a little, a little window into this. Um, and I don't think any of us know until it happens, like what it would be like. But to be a parent and like, having to like be there for your kids, and sometimes you just don't have the space to grieve on a schedule that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and for you to recognize this gap in the market that there was resources for widows, but not widowed parents. Mm-hmm. and to start recognizing that you couldn't possibly be the only person <laughs> facing right. this. Yeah. Um, and then deciding that you might want to put something forward. And and we got to work together a little bit back then, mm-hmm. I guess 2018. Back in 2018. Mm-hmm. When you came in and you were like, I want to do a podcast. And I'd had a podcast for a couple of years. So right. I had a little group of people. Um, there was one other person from that group, our friend Tammy Goodler-Lobe, who also launched the podcast. And um, we, she and I started our podcast on the exact same day. Yeah, we didn't it, even plan it that way, but amazing. we're podcast twins. 
it was it was uh it was really important that you had the space to like put energy into this but i remember one of your kind of gaps was your network i i remember how excited you were to figure out who you wanted to talk to and then you're like well how am i to get them to talk to me <laughs> right like, all this work to find like the author or the speaker or the right. resource right and then you know who are you like you're you, you didn't have all the accolades mm. and credentials you have today mm. what was that like when you had such like energy to do something good but didn't know exactly how you were going to pull it all together yeah you know it's interesting because because i was in tech before for so long and my you know whether it's my education or my experience my colleagues everything was a hundred percent different from from this so i knew literally zero people in the grief world right zero um and actually you know before we get to that part there's something else i think that's important on this thing of like finding a gap and identifying or you know raising your hand to decide you're going to be the one to fill it. I knew I wanted to start a podcast, like you said, but I was kicking around like, like, why me? Right? Like, why am I the one to start this podcast? And so it's like that hesitancy and like, like, okay, I, I want to jump in and fill this gap, but oh, right. And that kind of back and forth attention. And I remember like you told me like, well, cause, you know, cause I'm like, why me? Like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a parent, whatever certified parent, something or other, like, like, why does anybody want to listen to me on this? And and you said, well, you have your story and that's powerful. And I said, I know, I get it, right? Yes, that's part of it. But it still feels like there's something, it's probably just internal to me, right? But finally, I realized that I was kind of looking at it, if I flipped the way I looked at it, um, I was looking at it like I'm trying to be an expert and I'm not an expert and people are going to recognize that. And so why are they going to want to listen to me? And I realized if I flipped it and I said, my power here is that I'm not at that time, not the expert. So I can stand in the place of my listeners in the conversation, right? And I can interview the experts and the people sharing their stories and whatnot and, and ask on behalf, like as someone who is one of them, have these discussions. And that's how I got my head around like, because, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, there's a gap, so let me fill it. But then there's like the actual, how do you like get yourself to actually feel okay about you know or have the confidence or whatever to do that and so then to your point about like networking i remember i started a list way back then i still have the spreadsheet of like all the people that i could possibly interview and you know some of them are you know quote unquote bigger people and some of them are you know authors and some of them are like you know, celebrities even every time i heard of somebody that was related to this space and the space, by the way, so, you know, widowed parents is one category, people who lost a parent when they were young and now they're adult is another category. And then experts of various sorts is the other category. So I put people on my list, like, like Prince Harry, because he lost his mother, obviously when he was young and he has a powerful story to tell about how that played out over his lifetime being a grieving child. Right. And so obviously I haven't, I haven't gotten to him yet. Uh, but I put some other, you know, other people like authors that I knew who written books in the space, um, people who had podcasts, people, if, even if I heard of somebody, like somebody said, oh, my friend, my friend's sister's cousin, their husband died and they have these kids and whatever. It's so not like write them down. Maybe I'll talk to them. Uh, one of the people that I put on the list in the celebrity category was Melissa D. Arabian from the Food Network. Um, her mother died by suicide when she was in college, when Melissa was in college, I think she was 19. 
And I remember watching when she she won the Food Network Star Show like a bunch of years ago. And I remember watching it and being like, wow, that's so amazing, right? And so I put her on the list like, oh, well, guess what? I interviewed her uh, a couple of years ago. And, it, you know, and, and, I, and actually recently she um, left to go to, I, I forgot that she was on my list. And I, I she left to go to grad, a grad school program and I've kind of gotten to know her and we had this like little zoom going away thing. And I, I said like, Hey, I was just looking on my spreadsheet and I put you on my list in 2018 <laughs> and look at this now, five years later, like here we are like, you know, friends and, and she was on my show. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been, it's a long game for sure. Right. In terms of thinking about like how to approach this. I mean, I just love hearing you like where you were psychologically, like the, the voice inside your head, like what it was telling you, how you had to like rewrite that story. Yeah. So you could kind of pep your the pep talk you needed. And, um, and, and that you, you know, had this sort of wish list of people that five years later you're building these relationships with. Cause there was two things that I think you had to really figure out because you were a, you know, work a day job at a company person. And you also didn't have entrepreneurship as like a background you know, and so you didn't, you were, you're also the same time you're trying to build out your like grief and widow network. You're also joining. So earlier you mentioned you joined Dory Clark's recognized expert community and Dory Clark is a amazing speaker and author and business coach and teaches business class. I mean, she's amazing, right? Global, global superstar. And she has this program about how to become a recognized expert and has this amazing Facebook community, which is where you and I connected mm-hmm. and, you know, to, to find her opens up a door, right? Yeah. How did you find Dory? Like well, how does a person who works at IBM know that Dory's there? Did she come speak one year? Cause I've heard that story from you people. Yeah, no. Okay. This is the funniest thing. Uh, I am a certified project manager and you know, through the, well, what do you call it? The project management PMI project management Institute. And to keep your certification, you have to do a certain number of hours every three years of continuing ed kind of stuff. And I was desperate to finish my recertification. And one of the things you could do, you could go to classes and you could do all these things, but you could listen to project management podcasts. And so I was like, ooh, I can do that. I can put these project management podcasts on. And when I'm walking the dog and when I'm cooking dinner and when I'm driving and literally every single minute that I'm not doing something else, I'll listen to a project management podcast and clock my hours. And this was around the time Dory was on her virtual book tour for Stand Out, her second book, I think. And she was hitting the podcast circuit hard and she was on some project management podcast talking about standout. And I was listening to this and I was like, whoa, who is this person? Like, this is amazing. I have to get this book. And I bought her, you know, $15, $20 book. That was my entry point into her world. And like, I was like, I don't care about the project management hours on this. I'll clock my hour or whatever she listened. But I was like, this is like blowing my mind. And I bought the book and I never like take notes and stuff reading books, but I did write down all these notes of like, because stand out is all about like how to like define, you know, the areas where you could stand. Like it's, I got, I need to read it again, but like defining the areas where you could stand out. And I was, it was blowing my mind of like all the things I could do in this widow parenting space. And just, it was giving me all these ideas. And I have to say, you know, in terms of like, I was kind of an odd duck in her community for a while because 
most people there are no not in the grief space. And, you know, there's a, a lots of tremendous, you know, amazing people. And most of them are doing things entirely different from what I'm doing. But I learned a tremendous amount from watching all of them and getting to know some of them and just watching others that I could apply to like, when you're like, well, how do you build a podcast? How do you build a, a website? And I don't mean like, how do you make the buttons? I mean, like, what do you put and how, well, how do you like, what should you be? How do you, how do you put yourself forward? Like in this way, right? Um, how are these people showing up in the world and what kinds of things are they doing? And how can I apply that into the grief space? Cause most people working in the grief space come out of other backgrounds, social work and, and therapy and other kinds of backgrounds that are not business usually. Um, and most of the people in Dory's group are in various business pursuits. Um, so I, you know, it was tremendously beneficial to me to watch and learn what people were doing. Yeah. And to leverage it because, you know, by let's say launching a podcast, you kind of jump the line in the world of the grief space and like became a platform to raise the visibility of other people. And that idea is very common, like the idea of a podcast and using a podcast to leverage a network and to, to meet people is more common in the world of entrepreneurship and thought leadership than it might be like, I mean, I, my background social work, I don't think I, <laughs> if I had stayed in that space, I don't think I'd be thinking about a podcast. So, the, well, I have to say there are some really good grief podcasts though. Yeah, but it's just like cool that you you start to get an idea of what these new models could be. Yeah, and for sure. It's not it's a space that's not overrun, unlike business podcasts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's hard to differentiate yourself in the world of like a business podcast. Sure, sure. Whereas you you know, you came out and like you become really good at it. You you're also incredibly diligent with the technology piece. You're comfortable with that. You figured it all out. You got good at interviewing, you know, like you went all, all, all in. I mean, I watched you build a whole home studio. <laughs> I mean, you've just really developed a presence. So it, it comes across with a certain brand recognition and like um, you're just coming known. So you, you put all these pieces together. You decide to write this first book. How soon into all this did you write the first book? The podcast came out in 2019. Uh well, you know what? Next month, uh, and I know that because November is Children's Grief Awareness Month. So, as actually, as your listeners listen, it might be slightly after, but uh, 2018, November. So, f just about five years um, ago, I started Amazing. it. We were talking about you and Tammy uh, Gululo. It was in early 2018, like the first and second quarter that we were talking about this idea you both had. Right. The fact that you both six months later, like, had mm -hmm. it up and running on the same yeah. day, no less. We'll put yeah. it into both your uh shows uh, yeah and tammy's show is terrific she's had a lot of great guests on there yeah um working from the inside out is the title of it so mm -hmm. when did you decide to follow up with a book um well you know i mentioned before that i had gone to amazon to to try to find the book that would tell me what to do and i didn't find it and i'm like okay well i have to write that book now i still haven't written that book that's going to be the magnum opus right <laughs> so that's probably a 2020 five or 2026 20, book at this rate. And, and cause what I realized is that I need, so, so the podcast interviews are great for lots of things. And also they're great for the research for that book. Right. So 
I can, I'm interviewing the experts. I'm getting their stories. I building the relationships. I'm getting, you know, I mean, I might end up using just some quotes from our interviews and I may also end up going back to them and saying, can we go deeper on this or that? Right. Um, but I realized that that book had to wait because that, I mean, I'm not really joking about the magnum opus thing because this, this, like this, I really want to nail it with this book in terms of the content. And it's not so easy because it's not like you can say, oh, you're a widowed parent, do X, Y, and Z, and your kids will be fine and you're all done. Right. There's more like all these, you know, different things. So I decided to start, I decided I could start more easily with my story, with a memoir. And I also, and by the way, this kind of dovetails, uh, when Dennis was sick in 2015, I was keeping a Caring Bridge journal. And so for people who haven't heard of Caring Bridge, it's kind of like a free online blog that people use, usually in medical crisis kind of stuff, to keep their friends and their family updated what's going on. So I had eight months worth of blog posts that started out kind of matter of fact, like, you know, he had surgery and he's in recovery and whatever. Um, maybe he's coming home next week, that kind of thing eventually getting more and more reflective of like sharing what was going on and like using my time driving back and forth across the bridge to go to the hospital to think about what do I want to share? Like what's going on here that I can give people an insight in a window. So by the time I was done with eight months, I had 15,000 words documenting in real time, this journey of a young family with terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And people were telling me, Oh, you should write a book, you know, and, and, oh, you can just publish your Cambridge Journal. And I was like, okay, I know this 15,000 words is something. Like, it feels like the start of a book. It doesn't feel like a book yet. Because a book can't just be like, this happened, this happened, this happened, the end. And that's kind of what, you know, what we had. And so it took me a while to think about, like, how how does it become a book? Like, how, and, and what makes a memoir compelling? And and also, I wanted to, like I, like I said, I knew I wanted to write this nonfiction handbook you know, at some point, but I didn't also didn't want to wait till then to start bringing in some things that I had learned that could be helpful to people. And so I, you know, I told the story as a memoir, but wove in some like, I wish I had known this or that or done this or that, um, so that people could get some, some things out of it right away. Um, plus, you know, the memoir aspect. So yeah, it was published in J January of 20, uh, wait, I got it. This, this pandemic has messed me up on timing here. January of 2021. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I, st you know, it's, it was it's actually the summer of 2019. I was getting so frustrated. I was like, I got to start working on this. I got it. You know, no, I'll just schedule some time and I'll schedule blocks. And I wasn't getting it done. And finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to clear my calendar for August of 2019. And I'm going to write a thousand words a day. And at the end of the month, I'll be at 30,000 words. And I don't know if that's enough or not enough, you know, plus the 15 I already had, but it felt like putting a stake in the ground and at least I'll be close or something at the end of the month. And I, and I did finish, you know, that first draft by the end of the month. Um, and, but then I mean, it was another year plus before it actually came out. I mean, I remember reading it. It's really, really well written. It's a great story. It's, I think a story that even if, you know, you're not, a grieving parent. Um, it's it's one, and I think some of the content you've been sharing on social lately is also like, I can relate better to a grieving parent. Like, I feel like you're providing a resource to the rest of the community who wants to support people. And we, you know, afraid, afraid of making a mistake shy away. And so I feel like you're, you're filling in gaps that 
you know, weren't named for me before. That was my secondary theme, if you will, right? Like the primary theme, you know, but this, and I call it grief allies, right? How do you be a good grief ally to your friend, your neighbor, your colleague who's grieving? And, and specifically in my case, who's a widowed parent, but it's broader than that. It could be anybody who's grieving a, you know, a major loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did, We beca- and because I had so many people in my life at the time Dennis was sick for all that time, who modeled for me what it looks like to be a good grief ally without that word on it, no label, right? But they were just so tremendous. And as I was writing the book, I was like, I need a layer to this book that shows people how they can do that for others. So let's jump ahead to your second book Mm -hmm. because this time you followed actually a Dory Clark model. which is go into you 50 some odd people that are awesome, get them involved, coordinate their stories. I mean, she has a massive network. Mm. You, when I first started talking to you about all this, didn't. Mm. Yet here you are with this book, an anthology, 52 stories. What a difference. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So tell us a little bit how it came to be. And I literally started this. Now listeners can't see, I'm holding up a big old zero here. Zero... uh, people that I knew in this space whatsoever. I talked about the spreadsheet that I started, right, with some ideas. Um, But, you know, the podcast was really the starting point because it turns out that when you have a podcast, you have a powerful, um, you know, you you invite people and then a time goes by and then you start getting pitches, right? And especially when people have new books coming out and, uh, you know, or they have other things, they're a coach or they have something relevant, you know, then they pitch you. and, And, you know, when somebody has a good pitch that makes sense for my listeners. I, I love having them on. I have to say, I get a lot of lousy pitches that are like along the lines of like, I wrote a book, you should have me on. And I'm like, um, no. <laughs> and uh, Or they're just, you know, not a good fit for the audience. Um, so, you know, I met, I started meeting a lot of people that way. And then I actually went to the National Alliance for Children's Grief uh, annual symposium in 2019. I need, I've only been to it once because we've had COVID and, you know, I, it was canceled one year and then I've had various reasons I couldn't go. I am going next year for sure, because it's, you know, these are the people who work in the grief centers all across the country. Um, and the grief centers, if you don't know about, you know, many communities have grief programs. Like I like to call them kids and family grief centers. They have programs for little kids and programs for teenagers and programs for parents. And, you know, it turns out as I started you know, initially I felt like there's nothing. And what I realized is there's stuff, but it's disparate, right? Like somebody needs to pull it together into, like I could, through my podcast, I could pull together this resource, this idea, this author, this information, this story, right? And have a kind of a cohesive build, build out over time, a cohesive picture of what a widow parent might do. And so anyway, um, through the podcast, I guess when I started thinking about this most recent book, Widowed Parents Unite, I knew I wanted to have a book that was more geared toward people in the first year of loss. You know, sometimes people ask me if my my first book, my memoir is, you know, someone just died, is it appropriate for them? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, it depends, right? A lot of people, if, you, if the person died last week and you send them a memoir, like it might not land right. It depends on the person. But, um, and I hear from a lot of people that they, they can't focus on reading a whole book. I'm like, but if we had something that was short pieces 
you could sit down and read one or two and put it back down. And it's more suitable for the first year. So I said, all right, well, how am I going to get, you know, it's 52 weeks, um, 52 tips to get through the first year as part of the subtitle. Ended up with 48 people. So a few of them had two tips that were so good. I was like, all right, I can't pick. You get two because I'm not going to, right? <laughs> like, uh, so the 48 people involved. Um, you know, I reached out through um, my email list and said, you know, if you're a widowed parent, and I put together a form on my website, right? Like, this is what, what I'm working on. This is the kind of stories I'm looking for, the kind of topics. You know, if you're interested, submit something. I also reached out directly to, you know, by this time, because I had some of the people I interview on my show are widowed parents. And so I knew which ones the people I'd interviewed, you know, had compelling stories that I wanted to just reach directly out to and invite them to participate. Um, in other cases, for example, I needed more, I really wanted to make this inclusive of dads um, because there are way more resources on grief for women and for mothers. Um, and I really wanted this to be for parents. And so I had some guys that, you know, had, I had reached out to or had, you know, come up, but I didn't have enough. And I knew it wasn't going to get 50-50 or anything like that, but um, I wanted to have more representation. And so I reached out to some colleagues in the grief space and I was like, hey, do you know anybody that might be interested in doing this? And one person introduced me to a guy who runs the Widowers Support Network, which turns out is a whole Facebook group of widowed men. And some of them are older and have grown children, but a huge chunk of them are right squarely in my age range with children and teenagers. And so a bunch of them were interested and I reached out, you know, a couple other colleagues connected me with individuals. Um, so it's that kind of thing that, you know, five years ago, if I had said, oh, let me write a book and, you know, have all these different people involved and start five years ago, I, I don't even know who I would have asked. I mean, in, in some ways you did start five years ago by building that network. Yes, and and by the way, and I don't know before I met Dory uh, that I would have done it this way. She's right, by the way, that you, you have to start building your network. She talks about networking, social proof, and content creation is kind of her three stools, three legs of the stool. You know, for this book, I wanted to get endorsements, obviously, and um, and I wanted to ask different people than had endorsed my first book. I had, I don't know, 10 or 12 people endorse my first book, and I wanted to ask a different 10 or 12 people. Um, and I needed, because of a bunch of things, I needed them, like, fast. I needed them in, like, two weeks, which is kind of a, you know... Fortunately, this isn't a very long book, so it wasn't as I would not have asked them if it was like a 300 page book in two weeks turnaround. But I got I, because of building this network over five years and when, and but that just that sounds that sounds wrong. What I really mean is building these relationships over five years. I was able to reach out to the right people and they said yes, and they did it quickly. And they've been super supportive and, and it's amazing. And I will of course help them and have helped them, but it's, you know, if I was trying to do this five years ago, I would, and you know, and, and then somebody told me, Oh, you need endorsements for your book. I would have said, well, who am I supposed to ask? <laughs> <laughs> right. right. You know, just cause you mentioned it. Um, I have a resource to share with the listeners. Dory Clark was on my show. I don't know, my first year, I think back in 2016, early 2017, 
And she shared a resource that I love and I share all the time. And it's about what you just described, that three-legged uh, stool. Uh, it's a little kind of assessment for becoming a recognized expert. And it helps you understand where you are around content, social proof, and network. And it's available at Dory Clark, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com forward slash Robbie. And that's spelled R-O-B-B-I-E. And we'll put a link in the show notes um, and it'll get you that assessment and you'll get on Dory's list, which is not a bad thing um, to do because she's pretty awesome. And I'll, let me just second that. I think that's a great resource. I've looked at it and as filled and filled it out as well. And, uh, and, you know, and I think her, one of her points is you kind of, you know, you want to work all three, like if you're way strong in one and weak in two or strong in two and weak in one, that kind of pinpoints like, all right, you're doing great in networking. You got to work on content creation or vice versa, like that kind of thing. The thing I love about this resource, and I wish I had an assessment tool like it, is it's a snapshot of where you are and a roadmap for what you can do mm. to improve in each of these three areas. So I have actually suggested to clients that they take it before they start working with me and then take it every year. And yeah. just, or anytime they have a big shift in, like when I started shifting to Zoom, I waited like a year and then I did the assessment again to see uh, yeah. kind of what I still needed to do to kind of shore up <laughs> the three-legged stool. How wobbly is it? Um, we have to wind down this. I feel no. like we could really chat for a lot <laughs> we longer. We could keep talking about this all day long. Um, so as we get into our, our wrap-up question, I'm going to just give a quick pause to hear it for a word from our sponsor. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. Steve, tell listeners what you cover on the show. The Boost is our podcast, and the tagline is conversations with people promoting mental health, and that's what it is. So it's marketers, company executives, therapists, and mental health advocates talking about what they're doing to move this industry and this important thing called mental health forward. Amazing. And where can people subscribe? I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find us there, just uh, slash Steve Turney, or you can find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe. All right. My favorite wrap-up question is, we are staying in touch. We are always in touch. I've been watching you. Um, even if we haven't interacted nonstop, I love seeing what you do. But let's say it's a year from now, and I or you remember that a year ago we've had this conversation during this important month, and I ask you, like, what are you celebrating? What are we toasting right now? In other words, what are you looking forward to the most in the year ahead? Yes. Well, oh my God, I could probably think of 15 things and that would be too many and I'd have to pull back and like not do all of them. <laughs> but what I really, my number one thing for this next year is to get these children's books into the world. And this is still in this ecosystem of widowed parents and grieving children. The idea being that, you know, now I have a memoir, now I have a book with short form entries the kids need support too. The kids of my listeners, the kids of my readers, the kids of the people in my in my world. And so I have this idea, which, you know, might sound a little crazy. It's 25 books, uh, <laughs> children's book series. And like, and the reason it's 25 books is that there are 24 character traits of positive psychology. And so there'll be one with each of those traits as part of the storyline. And then the, 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 first book though is going to be more of a introductory introducing us to all the characters and they're probably going to meet in a grief group or something i haven't quite decided my daughter who's 16 is the illustrator and she's already developed 
all six of our main characters. And uh, in fact, I was talking to someone last night and they said, it sounds like your illustrator's outperforming you, the author, on these books. And I said, absolutely, she's outperforming me. Like, she's she's done all she can do right now, develop the characters. I've got to give her storylines so that she can, uh, you know, turn the characters into stories. So I think we have NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month in November here. And I'm going to sort of make it national children's book writing NaNoWriMo for myself and try to get a handle on the storylines and try to get those out into the world next year. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, talk about a gap you see, a gap you step into. So mm. it's like the kind of leadership that you really embody. I can't wait to celebrate that and support you and help you with all those launches and everything Thank you've you. learned up until now to make that possible with your network. Uh, how you. can people find you and follow your work? Great question. Uh, if you go to widowedparentinstitute.com, that is my website where I have all my resources, my podcasts, my books, um, social links and all that. And actually there is some information for grief allies on there. So if you're not a widowed parent, I have information for widowed parents too. Um, but if you want to know how to support the friends and family, neighbors, colleagues, I have a really great email series with just like specific, like short tips coming out weekly. Um, and I've got some stuff you can download on that. So widowedparentinstitute.com has, uh, has all my stuff. That's fantastic. We're going to put that link in the show notes. And I also see, I have a link to your YouTube, uh, separately to your podcast, uh, to Instagram, LinkedIn, you're, you're in all the places. We'll make sure people can find you and connect with you. Please. If you do reach out to Jenny, let her know where you heard about her so she can know that. And you guys can connect around this conversation. I'll put all the links in the show notes and on the schmooze.com. Jenny, I'm, I'm so excited that we had to have this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Robbie. This has been awesome. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jenny. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 362. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Danielle Wiley hosts a great podcast called The Art of Sway. Danielle, tell us what you talk about on the show. The Art of Sway brings listeners inside the world of marketing as seen through the lens of influence. So each week I chat with an expert guest for a lively discussion about connecting ideas with audiences in an attempt to uncover all the ways influence impacts how and what we
we discover, purchase, and recommend to each other. Wow. And where can people subscribe? Go to theartofswaypodcast.com. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Art of Sway wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.